Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast once again. We're back for another week. My name is Matt Walsh, no Jake this week, but Jared Barker is back in the studio along with Champion Data's Christian Jolly. Christian, we actually had a question during the week uh, about how you've never had an episode off. So Jake has taken time off at different times. I've taken time off. JB's had to step in. But you've been the one constant on this podcast. I don't think you've ever missed an episode. No, and I believe I might have done one on my birthday, the year that the grand that final right? was moved. October 23rd is my birthday. I think we had a there was an October 24 grand final yeah. one year. So no, 100% Happy birthday rate. for that. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I hope we wish you a happy birthday for that one. I'm sure some listeners could go back and listen if they really wanted to. Uh, what would happen if you were sick enough and, and you had to pull the pin would you send someone else in would we have to postpone oh, what, what would the deal be to you guys I'm sure there's plenty of other capable people at Champion Data that have access to the numbers so um, yeah it remains to be seen but yeah I mean the show goes on without me at Champion Data so fair enough uh, Jared good to have you back in the studio plenty to chat about this week uh, we're going to talk about the D's their lean patch of form how Port Adelaide have won uh, 12 in a row and we're also going to chat about your magpies and a whole lot more but mm. before we crack in something from the weekend that uh, you noticed that took your fancy uh, the first thing that I did notice, actually, if if I may just step in here, I did listen to the podcast last week, and I reckon Jake oh, might have just you. left a little bit of a cheap shot, calling out my little Hawthorne call that they wouldn't win a game this year. Seems that whoever's not on the pod is copying cheap shots, because I copped one too as well when I had uh, a week off when I was a little bit ill. Yeah, were you a little bit ill? That was the question. But uh, for a guy who's claiming that you know Nick Dacos isn't in his best 50 players of the season... Oh who also claimed that Shea Bolton and Dusty Martin would combine for 100-plus goals. <laughs> you see, I just thought it was a little bit cheap. But uh, maybe... We all have our bad calls. We do. Yes. But maybe you know a few guys with some wrong calls makes for a, a funny podcast. So maybe the more bad calls we make on the record, the better. But getting into my real something that I noticed, it was Jamie Elliott's goal on the weekend, one of his five goals that he kicked. So one of them, it was end-to-end. I was watching back on the highlights. I thought Jeremy Howe took the kick in. Straight down the middle, down to Darcy Moore. Handboard it over the top to Nathan Murphy. He streamed through the middle, kicked it long inside 50. I think there was a free kick paid, but Jamie Elliott got it out the back and kicked a goal. I thought it was very quick when I was watching it. And I timed it myself and I thought, that to me looks like it's within 12 or 13 seconds. And I reckon that must be one of the quickest goals we've seen in quite a long time. I think the one that in comes terms in of end my to mind, end. in from, terms of end-to-end, yeah. from a kick-in. The one that I thought of was the buddy one where he hurdled the yep. uh, that contest against Collingwood. Got a good bounce too. Got a very good bounce. That was a quick one too. But we thought we'd ask Christian, is there anything in that? Is Jamie Elliott's goal quicker? Is it the quickest we've seen? Where does it actually rank in terms of the quickest goals from a kick-in? So, yeah, a couple of things on that. So, we'll start with the goal from the weekend. So, 13.4 seconds it was timed at. So, uh, which is the quickest... Uh, end-to-end or kick-in goal that we've got in our system, which goes back to only 2019 in this new timing system. So Mm -hmm. what we've done is across from 1999 to 2023, we've time-captured all stats to within one to two seconds of the stat actually happening. So a guy kicks the ball, we call kick long. It might take a second for that to actually be clicked in capture. Um, And on top of that is the goal recorded. We don't actually, for 20-plus years, we didn't record the goal until the goal umpire actually signalled with the two fingers. So you'd have the ball cross the line, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds later, the oh. goal umpire would That's actually signal the That's the same the for goal. the game clock. gets stopped only once Correct. the Correct. So we, we were mm. in so, line So if, it's, we if the umpire has to that. run across and then has to run back to the middle yep. and then so, signal. Yeah, if you look at the old 
late nineties, early two thousands vision, the goal umpires were doing a lot more running and looking for the field umpire to get the the thing. That would all take into account the time yeah, okay. sort of cost. So now since twenty nineteen, what we've done is with the GPS data, we've gone back and we've actually what we call time synced everything. So every single stat we actually go through frame by frame on the vision and time exactly oh, yeah. when it happens. So the end goal is so at the moment there is no ball tracking data with the GPS, but hopefully we get to the get to a stage where we have the GPS data where everyone is standing at any particular time and with our time capture data we can tell you exactly where the ball and what was happening at that exact second of the day. So we've got that since 2019 and as I said, this goal from the point of, uh, I think Jeremy Howe took the kick in, yep. so from him leaving the square, as soon as he stepped out of the square to the ball crossing Collingwood's goal line uh, was 13.4 seconds. So if you sort of wait to the goal umpire signalled and things, I think we had it at 18 seconds as our raw sort of count. Uh, but yeah, another four and a half seconds sort of comes off when you sort of retime everything exact. It's equal to a, I think it was Taron Thomas kicked a goal in round two last year for North Melbourne, uh, which was exactly 13.4 seconds as well. Hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, unfortunately the buddy goal just doesn't doesn't make it into that time frame, so we don't mm. have the exact seconds for his, uh, his goal back well, then. We were looking at it in the office before. We had the buddy one and the Elliott one side by side. We tried to press play at the same time, but we were doing it when... When it's play on, so play on back in the buddy goal was kick. you couldn't you couldn't the leave boot. the square, so yeah, it's when the ball leaves yourself, the boot. Yeah. So whereas Howe left the square, so yeah. we were like whenever when Howe took the step outside the square, and then from when the ball hit the boot of the Hawthorne player coming out of it is when we started. Them. Yep, that's how yeah. we would do it as well. And yep. we so Buddy's one looked at least a second quicker. It looks quicker, yeah. But if you time it from when it leaves Howe's boot, so if you didn't leave the goal square, it's, yeah. it's probably it's a quicker. But yeah, anyway, quick goals. Uh, Christian, something from the weekend that took your fancy. Yeah, well, um, uh, this comes from probably the lower levels, but in VFL we saw uh, Jacob Bauer for Richmond kick an after-the-goal siren uh, to win on the game on the weekend. Um, and it's actually the second time he's done it this year. So I know on the podcast we've spoken about clutch, clutch goal kickers and who you'd want kicking for your life and how good Robbie Gray, I think Robbie Gray kicked a goal and a behind to win it. I don't think he's kicked two goals after the siren yeah. across his career. There's a couple game. of Gary Rowan's kicked two after the siren. Yeah, so I think, yeah, Jacob Bauer joins a very exclusive club to do it not only twice, but twice in the same year. And, um, yeah, I've sort of been watching this guy pretty closely. I've got some... I've, Personally, got some big raps on him. He's making his debut this week against Sydney. I think it's been announced yesterday. So just one to watch. He's sort of a, it's inter- a tight one. intercepting defender. Very, very good overhead, but as sort of re- was recruited as a forward. So again, I know Jake's not here, but he's sort of following a very similar path to James Sicily in terms of the development that he, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting him up there to saying he's going to captain Richmond in three or four years' time. Mid-sized but he's had that very, yeah, that mid sized forward that's very, very good overhead that's now had a year and a half development down back. Uh, any other? I think there's a couple of two times goal kickers after the siren, at least since 2000, which is when we've got a yarn on on the website, Jazzy. Yeah, uh, Barry Hall might be the other Barry one. Barry Hall, yeah. Robbie Gray. Robbie Gray has he kicked is two? He, as has well? he kicked two? Oh, we were just, just trying was to. Barry work Hall. Out. Were they both winners? Or was one for a draw? Uh, I think Barry Hall. I think there's one to get him into the finals. Yeah. Might have done three. Might have done one oh. for a draw as well. I reckon. Mm, we'll have to go back and see that. But we have every we have goal kicking. Sorry, every game winning goal. So not um, not game drawing or anything like that, but every game winning goal uh, since 2000, we've ranked on the website, espn.com.au forward slash AFL. There's been 30 since the turn of the millennium. Um, and yeah, there's some good ones there. All the videos are there. You can go through and uh, check them out. So have a look at the website there. Uh, something I noticed and especially interesting, I think, considering the result of the match. Um, it was a draw. So Sydney and Geelong on Friday night, bit of a dismal game. Uh, probably the actual right result too. I don't think either side really put their hands up with a claim to win it uh, at all. Uh, so it was kind of fitting. But what sort of came out in the wash-up was that City didn't actually use their sub. So they 
obviously the subs brought in you can you can activate them early if there's a medical reason or you feel like it and you can also activate them tactically so there's a notion of, of fresh legs in there as well so ryan clark wasn't used uh by the swans and it's it's just a bit strange why would you not use a guy that has fresh legs and if he's not the right guy to bring on because he's not as dynamic why would he be the tactical sub well see the sub yeah i get but i can see both sides of the argument so i understand what you're saying if, if you want someone with fresh legs yeah. and you think he's going to make an impact as a sub hmm. and you're not using him why are you even making him a sub but i think it's circumstantial so i can see why maybe um structurally Lamar, maybe yeah well look sydney were the best team in that game out of the two. They were the far superior side. They should have obviously won that game. So they had a lot working well for them. If in that late stage, uh, John Longmire thinks, well, I don't want to hamper anything. What, why fix something that isn't actually broken? We're actually getting those opportunities. We're just not kicking accurately. If that's mm. the only thing that was going wrong, is Ryan Clark going to fix their goal-kicking accuracy? It's a, it's a great question. Um, so d- does the circumstance of that game require him to come on? Uh, it's a good question, but it's also very rare. I feel like y- you're going to throw a guy in. Like we, I asked Christian this as well, and, and how many times that a sub hasn't been used this year, and it's only yeah, him it's and only, one other time. Only the mm. second time. So Toby McLean, I think round three or four was an unused sub for the Bulldogs as well. And I'll probably, I'm probably a little bit the other way. I'm surprised it hasn't happened more often. Where, I mean, this was a different stage. Obviously, the game was a draw, so you're always looking for you know one extra point. If we had got one extra point somehow, but I feel like a few times I've watched the game sort of progress and you think well out of the 22 players playing I wouldn't be summing anyone off here they've all been mm. going quite well and it's I think that was similar to the Bulldogs game I think they won that night they sort of made no need to change put Toby McLean on and again it's one of those ones I know Ryan Clark was a bit different because I think the VFL played first but sometimes if you have an unused sub you can use them the next day in the VFL so I thought we would see yeah. you know once one every four or five weeks being unused um, but yeah sort of surprisingly for me it's only the second time but you're right Ryan Clark's probably more of a defensive, more of a lockdown player. You're going to bring him on probably to cool off a Geelong player rather than try to find you an extra you know, goal or two on the scoreboard. Which I guess asks the question of why he was selected as the sub. Because mm. if you're banking on replacing... How would you approach the sub? Do you approach the sub as you're hoping that it's a tactical sub and you can bring on someone new? You, don't, you obviously don't want to prepare for someone to be injured and, and hope that you, know, you can replace a intercept defender with an intercept defender. Obviously, that's probably not how you go into it. So then why would you have a guy who is more of a lockdown, defensively-minded guy as your sub when you could have someone who, who can bring on genuine fresh legs or can bring on yeah. you know, some sort of genuine um, you know, change to the philosophy of the forward line or whatever it might be? I just, I just don't understand the, the, the thought process well, there. A little bit on that is I don't understand the thought process of... And again, Ryan Clark probably you know, um, gets into the category of what, what, what I definitely would use as a sub, but I wouldn't be using a guy in his first... I don't understand why guys in their first, second fifth games are being used as a sub so these guys are 18 year old guns that have been recruited from playing you know 100 minutes of footy and sort of that's why you recruit them because they're used to being out in the field and getting the ball and sort of playing their natural game to bring them on and Mm. make them sit there for half a game and then come on halfway through the third quarter when everyone else has got a feel for the game umpires are umpiring so you know the the game sort of settled in 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 a rhythm and you bring in a young guy that sort of has no impact so again i'd be looking at more experienced guys that you're just comfortable that can sit on the bench take in the game understand what's going on yep. when we inject them into the game they've got a feel for the game well here's something for the coaches out there who are the players that have had the most impact as the sub this year so those that we have seen at different times this year maybe at least more than once uh, who come on and maybe for a quarter have such a high impact and when we, we ask Christian this as well and maybe here we can look at you know how we quantify this being 
uh, disposals or rating points per minute played or whatever it might be. But who are the guys that have successfully been used as a as a sub this year? Yeah, so I've used disposals per minute just to sort of keep it simple um, and looked at sort of, yeah, the most impactful subs and the most impactful sub games as well. So one of the best sort of impact sub games was probably Ned McHenry, round nine, came on for 23 minutes and had 13 disposals, which equates to 55 disposals per 100 minutes. So for anyone to play at least, you know, more than 15 minutes as a sub, that's one of the biggest games in terms of disposals per 100 minutes um, that Ned McHenry had in round nine. I think he had also four or five tackles on the uh, in his time on the ground as well in those 23 minutes. So... He's had a big game. Matt Kennedy, the week before in round eight, had 40, um, 40 disposals per 100 minutes in his 32 minutes on. I think that was a Carlton loss to Brisbane. So, again, he came on and got a fair bit of the ball, but probably didn't change the result. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at guys that are sort of, yeah, been sub more, you know, I looked at the guys that have been used sub at least three times this year and who sort of had the most disposals per minute in the time they've come on. Um, and if you're talking about a super sub this year, it's probably been Carlton's most maligned player or... You know, even one of their most uh, sort of, um, what do you call it, sort of, yeah, at the selection the table, boy. you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's always queried at the selection table how he's not getting a game. But Paddy Dow has been used as a sub three times this year. Um, across those three games, has averaged 28 disposals per his 100 minutes, which, as I said, looking at everyone that started sub at least three times this year, which we've got about uh, just under 20 names, he's the number one player. So... Uh, yeah, he's had the most impact. As I said, Ned McHenry, James Jordan, and Logan uh, Mc, uh, Lockie McNeil at Bulldogs yep. are all being used six times each. So they're the most used subs. Uh, but Paddy Dow with his threes had the most impact. Who are the players or the types of players that have come on and haven't really been able to impact the game? Yeah, so the two lowest ones probably stand out to me. And they play the same position. And we saw one this week. Jake Malksham actually got 70-odd minutes as the sub. Mm. Uh, Bailey Fritch came off early. Jake Malksham played the whole game. And I think he had four or five touches. So even he, he was injected for... A fair bit of the game and still didn't get into it. So he's been used as sub three times this year. Averaged eight disposals per 100 minutes when he does get on the field, which is the lowest. Um, and as I said, that's 65 minutes per game across the four games it averages out to. So it's a miss trick having a guy that has eight touches per 100 minutes as your sub. I feel like if you can bring yeah. in someone who maybe at VFL level like Paddy Dow, they're an accumulator. You can actually get them into the pace of the game whenever it might be. I think Paddy Dow's only really come on a few times after the three-quarter time siren uh, for mm. the Blues. So... It kind of yeah, those kind of guys where and I think another one on your list is Alex Sexton at the yeah, Suns. he's the next lower. So again, similar to Melksham, even when they play full games, yeah. I feel like you're only expecting them to get the ten or twelve touches and maybe get you a couple of goals. But that's across a hundred minutes of sort of working up and back. But yeah, Sexton's another one that's been used as sub five times this year, forty, just under forty four minutes per game for eight disposals per one hundred minutes. So sort of yeah, I think they're bring, bringing those two guys on to sort of get you the some quick and easy goals but yeah it just hasn't happened for him it's hard to play as a forward though so when you're a forward and you're coming on as a sub it's actually hard to impact so why the bring game him on as full? why have sub forwards as subs it's a good question but you mentioned Jake Malcolm. I, I, I could have sworn last year he came on a couple of times as the sub late in the season and Had kicked a few, a few goals yeah yeah, maybe there's a bit more of an art form to deciding who is the sub and I'm sure coaches have their reasons but um, interesting to watch to see if Clubs, coaches, um, and players can kind of find a really happy medium or a good balance about impact and, and the amount of time that these guys play. Mm. Uh, power, 12 in a row, Jazzy. They're looking pretty good up there with uh, the Pies at the top end of the ladder. Uh, where does Dan Houston's After the Siren winner sit on the list for you? I know that we've got the yarn, ESPN.com.au yeah. AFL for you. It's hard to categorically put it in one specific spot because how do you, how do you judge the best After Siren mm goals is, is it, it the technical difficulty of the kicks per se 
or is it the moment the occasion um and everything else like is was it part of a comeback yeah i think it all matters where their finals implications that probably elevates and after the siren goal as well yep. so yeah if you're thinking about the actual shot difficulty it's has, right there, up has there. there been a harder shot it's it's similar to the tom hawkins one but that wasn't a wet night yeah jack noon's in the wet jack noon's was in the wet but that was on a tighter angle so that's probably a better kick in terms of shot difficulty Jamie elliott from that that flank is so tough. i have elliott and noon's as the the two angles that they were on as the the best shots yeah because of how difficult it was being on that angle i think 40 plus on the boundary is it doesn't really get any more difficult when you're 50 50 plus out you do have the ability to just kick through the footy and you have a lot of open goal face. I'm not mm-hmm. taking anything away from the Hawkins goal or Ash McGrath McGrath. or the Dan Houston one from the weekend. Um, but that's why I would have that be- at least behind those goals that I've just that I've just mentioned there. But in the wet, it elevates it. I just don't think there was enough in that game. It wasn't a final to yeah. put it in the top five. I think we've got it maybe accurately. Check, check okay, it out yeah, and see what you yeah, say. Leave, leave the little t- teaser in there. I don't mind that, uh, where we've got it. But he's near one of his teammates in, in Robbie Gray. Let's just put it that way. Mm. And uh, that was that was a similar shot to mm. noon. Same sort of angle. angle. About 35, 40 hours. day. Yep. Christian, we've talked on this podcast before about players you'd like uh, having a shot for your life. Um, we've talked about sort of 30 straight in front. Um, all this kind of, or you know, plonked anywhere on the ground, who's most likely to sort of make a decent fist of it. But when you're talking from distance like that, I don't think there's a player on Port Adelaide's list Essendon fans would have hated seeing it more than in the hands of Dan Houston because we know he can launch a long one. Um, we know that he doesn't mind a, a big goal. I don't think there's anyone on that side that would have no, made and, a better fist of that. And the, as soon as Kane Farrell's it, probably the only other one that could have kicked that. Kane Farrell got some numbers on him, so we'll talk about him hopefully soon. But yeah, Dan Houston... Um, I was sort of worried that just that he is a big kick, but just as a general defender and kicking over the man, I thought he's going to come off his line here. I would hate for the game and to end did, if he kind did. Of, yeah, yeah, but I think because he starts actually, he was really smart to do what he did. I did you start on the telecast. I did not notice the umpire come and tell him or give him a reminder that yeah. he can't go offline. He actually started left on his own because he knew what his natural arc. Yeah, would be. I yeah. thought that so was you actually can, really you can smart. come onto your yeah, you can come yeah. back into line for him to know that as well line, without yeah. needing a reminder. Yep, so the buddy rule. So it was good. But even the... Uh, the As soon as he took the mark, they showed Ken Hinckley on the bench. And he just had a smile on his yeah. face. And I, I said to the guys in the office the next day, I watched, the, I watched that game from home, I said, to me, that's the definition of zen for a coach. Yeah. He just... The mark was taken. He had the biggest smile on his face. And he was just like, if I could choose anyone to kick it, I'd choose him. Mm. If this is going to break our 11-game winning streak, so be it. There was there was no pressure from, you know, from the look on Ken Hinckley's face. He was this there. And as I said, it, it just looks like a coach that's in... A perfect spot at the moment that yeah. he was just enjoying that moment and just thought well if he kicks it great if he doesn't we're still going to get the same message and and take the same uh sort of you know result from this game so uh i think ken hinkley came out and said he if he could choose anyone as well he would have chosen dan houston um port look a little bit similar to how collingwood looked at times last year jared mm. when we talk about they've won a lot on the trot but they're six and oh in games decided by 10 or fewer points this year and, we, and yep. the pies were very good at this last year they were um, eleven and one in home and away under twelve points, and they had the two losses by a kick in final, so maybe eleven and three for the year in total. But Porter grinding out these tight wins, and the the narrative last year was was whether it's skill or luck on behalf of Collingwood, and luck's a bit of a dirty word in the Champion Data offices. Oh, it's not a dirty word. It's just how do you measure luck? I mean, it's just it's it's one of those things in the world. It's just it has to be more system than luck. That's and, and, that's that what. Well, Porter were two and seven by twelve or fewer points last year, and they all of a sudden they're six and zero. Oh. Yeah. 
100%. Yeah, so again, yeah, I, I look at it a lot, a lot to do with system. And if you look at, you know, the team, we're going back, I've gone back the last three years and looked at teams that have a good record in, and I've looked at 10 points as the as the smaller margin and, and um, you know, any game is within 10 points. And it is, it's Collingwood and Port Adelaide are on top with 13 wins and six losses for Collingwood in the last three years. So going back to the start of 2021. Uh, and Port are 13 and four. So as I said, coming into this season, that was seven and four for, um, for you know, 10-point results and probably one of those teams that was just there, you know, always there, always top four, but hadn't made a grand final and thereabouts. So it's almost like this year, it's, it's one of the little things that's turned. Their, their games, closer games are going their way and therefore they've, mm. they've got themselves up, you know, second on the ladder and, and looking, um, you know, a bit more favoured this year than they have previous years. So Collingwood's been another one, but then the surprising one again up, up there is Fremantle, seven and three in the last three years. So they've been pretty good in close games. We know they're a bit of a Dow, a low-scoring team, but... Again, Freo's not one of those ones where you sit at three-quarter time. Like, you do watch Port Adelaide and Collingwood. Sydney had it for years that you just think they're never out of the game. They're never mm. out of the game. I've never really thought that about Freo in the last three or four years. But as I said, the numbers show they've been good in tight games. Uh, and down the other end, again, so talk about whether it's system-based or luck-based. Again, I'd back Richmond's system in most of the time. But three wins and 11 losses in... And that's just home and away rounds in the last three years. So they also had a small loss to... Brisbane in the finals as well, which you the can Tom add to the numbers. Shot. So mm. three out of almost, you know, 14 or 15 close results have gone against Richmond in the last three years who have had such a, a bankable system that, that they've relied on. So mm. similar to the Pies last year, Port's percentage isn't as good as the teams around them. So they're second on the ladder, but their percentage is fifth best um, at 118.4. The Crows are in seventh who have a better percentage of 119.6. Collingwood last year finished with, uh, I think it was 104.3. Uh, despite finishing in the top four this year, they're at 138. So they're winning big games, and they've had. We talk about you know how how well they won narrow last year. They're winning big this year, and some of their margins mm. have been uh, have been extraordinary. So you look at Port, and obviously they've improved. And they're second on the ladder, but the Pies at first. Jared, if you're a Collingwood fan, you must be really really happy that you're seeing even more improvement in 2023. Yeah, but I think that's the thing that no one took into consideration with those close games last year I mean we're trying to assess how Collingwood would perform this year Hmm. it was they won so many close games they have to take a step back the regression to the mean sort of thing but no one took into consideration the fact that they might actually improve and well, they'll win the same number of games or whatever it might be, but well, by a bigger margin. Those yeah, tight I think wins the spin that we didn't put wins. on it is the confidence they would have, they would have realised yeah. we can win from anywhere, so they have that confidence in their game plan. You Which know. is why I still I'm still confident in Port Adelaide. They're clearly a top two team for me because the six six straight wins that they have in games decided by ten points or less, three of those games they were trailing it three quarter time, so they will come back wins, and three of them were they were winning at three quarter time, so they were holding on to leads, and that's quite similar to Collingwood last year. And which is why I was shutting, trying to shut down people when they were saying they're just getting lucky. It's a lot of those wins were they were eating down on deficits, you know, but they were losing by 20 points or whatever, three quarter time. And a lot of those wins were they already established a lead and were holding on to it. And when you're winning both of those ways, the system, you can visibly see it on field, the system is different depending on the circumstance of the game. Mm-hmm. And I can see that with Port Adelaide this year. They're winning it in different ways. They're not just getting lucky. Sometimes you have to make your own luck, but I do put it more down to system. So, uh, Pies and Power, 52 points each, so um, 13 and 2. Um, then next down, you've got Brisbane, 11 wins. And then the Ds, 9 and 6. Now, you're looking at the sort of the top eight, and we were discussing this in the office before, Jared. The Pies, Power, Lions, probably just sneaking away from the Ds? Yeah, well, la- so ladder-wise, they're going to be the top three. 
But I, I would still argue that if we're talking about premiership favourites, I would still have Melbourne above Brisbane. But they've had a lean patch. They have, but I like what they're doing defensively and the MCG factor. So I think Brisbane are going to finish top three on the ladder. Melbourne might only just hold on to fourth or even just miss out on it, but I would still have them as a better flag chance than the Lions. So what do you make of their loss to the Giants on the weekend? Lost by two points. Uh, could only put in five goals. Obviously, conditions weren't great, but 5-15, um, you had a stat about just their lack of ability to hit the scoreboard over the last sort of six weeks. Mm. Are you worried by this? Well, they averaged 106.9 points in their first nine weeks of the season and 63.8 in the last six weeks, which is which is quite damning. And I know Kristen's got more numbers to get into uh, about the Ds, but they had 73 inside 50s. For five they, marks. They were plus 67 for disposals. They were plus 10 for hitouts. They were plus 20 for clearances. They won the center clearances 14 to 2. They had plus 27 inside 50s. They had 73, as you say. Mm. And they were plus 12 tackles inside 50. How did they lose this game? They're, they're still not... I, I, don't, I don't know. They're still not conceding high scores. That's true. So they're, they're doing well defensively. They're the number one contested possession team, intercept team uh, this season. Only the Pies have conceded less points per game but obviously there's a scoring woe and Bailey Fritch coming out of the side now mm. doesn't help that so that's what where the big query so comes the, the scoring is amazing to me so again just a quick sort of profile on you're right second for points against hardest team to score on when you go inside 50 against them but down the other end 13th for scoring from their own inside 50 uh, and I think 13th for points four as well um, so, yeah, they're sort of struggling at the offensive side. Again, looking at offensive win percentage, one-on-ones, they're 13th for winning a one-on-one at their end of the ball, but number one defensively for losing it. So they don't lose anything defensively, but just don't have that the spearheads up forward. But, yeah, the accuracy is a, a massive one. So, again, talk about luck and reverting back to the mean and things like that. Melbourne's gone the other way. So rounds one to nine, they were the most accurate team in the competition. We, we I think we spoke about around uh, that round particularly or might have been a bit earlier. But Melbourne were the number one accurate team, so the 58.2% scoring accuracy in that time. They were the most accurate from set shots. They were the most accurate from distance. They were the most accurate on the run. So it wasn't like they were getting easy shots. They were just an accurate team. So in that time, they had scored plus 126 points more mm. than they were expected to across the first nine rounds, which was number one in the comp. Uh, rounds 10 to 16, accuracy's dropped. So as I said, 58.2% from the first nine rounds. 32.7% uh, in the last six weeks, which is 18th. Yeah. Uh, and then 95 points below expected, which is 18th. So to go from number one for expected points to 18th for expected points, that's that's not just reverting back to the mean. That's going, you're so far ahead. Now you're so far behind everyone. Mm. It's just it's just amazing turnaround in fortunes for them. If you want to find a, like a, I hate using the word barometer, but a barometer for this, it's Christian Petrarca, one of the Brownlow favourites. Um, obviously gets a lot of the ball and gets a lot of looks at goal, Christian, but just has not been converting anywhere near where we think we might see from him. Yeah, amazing numbers for him as well. So he, he doesn't have that sort of first period where, as I said, Melbourne were accurate for nine rounds. I don't think we've seen a, 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 a accurate period for Petrarca, but this year he's had... Uh, what is it? So, f- twelve goals, nineteen behinds, and fifteen missed shots. So, obviously, three more missed shots than he has kicked goals, uh, which is one of the worst differentials in the comp. The only other worst differential is Will Day, who has actually had two goals and nine missed shots, negative seven. And Will Day, one for me uh, again. Talk about early days, Bont. Will Day, I still got big raps on Will Day because he knows how to get the ball. He's just yep. got to finish off that tidiness and things like that. So, interesting number for him. But yeah, as I said, Petrarca, twelve goals from. Uh, 46 shots gives him an accuracy of 26%. Uh, so in front of goal, he just he just can't wow. hit anything. I think he had five shots at goal and, and didn't score one on the weekend. 
But giving the ball off, he's got 20 goal assists and 10 behind assists for 30 score assists, obviously, for the year. Second most behind Ryan Myers. So if he's if he's got the goals in sight, he just needs to lay it off. So it's not as if they can be confident in trying to swing him forward when Oliver comes back into the midfield, given how inaccurate he is. Exactly. Only only if he's creating for someone else. Yeah. But again, I think his eyes light up from the outside 50. He can make the distance, but he's just got no accuracy on that kick. Um, mm. The Bailey Fritcho mission for a couple of weeks is going to be pretty big, pretty hefty. Yeah. Um, he's, he's one of those guys that... I, I know that he cops a bit of stick, you know, he's he's a good link guy. Can can use the ball well. His disposal's pretty good. But he's also an accurate kick. He's a good mark on the lead. He can find the ball loose. He's just one of those jack-of-all-trades that, you know, you can almost pencil him in for one to two goals a week. And losing that while the Ds are struggling to find avenues to scoring, yeah, it could could cost him as well. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it absolutely could. And, you know, the, the resting Gorn and, and Grundy forward as well probably isn't working. I don't think we've seen a lot of Ben Brown this year, but clearly Simon Goodwin doesn't have so much faith in him if he's been playing Jacob Van Ruin, who's going to be a good player ahead of him this season. But now I guess they have the chance to play JVR and Ben Brown in the same team if they go that way. And it, look, conditions you know, that, weren't great for them as well. No, uh, they weren't. Weekend. So and like, how much of the loss comes down to the fact that they're selling games to Alice Springs great as well? Question. I, I, is, it, is it about time that they pull out of that deal? Because I think it is. Well... That deal came about when they were struggling financially, mm. obviously. And it's worth... Uh, look, I think the last count that I saw, it was worth about $600,000 per game to them to play in Alice Springs. And and that's nothing to sniff at in terms of um, you know, a footy club trying to trying to well, get from where they were uh, to where they are now, which is profitable. Um, but And they'll play there next year. I think the deal is until the end of 2024. But I don't know if they should be renewing this deal. You ask no. fans of any club, and I know that... You know the bean counters at footy clubs will tell you differently, but the fans, I reckon, ninety five percent of fans would not want their club selling any home game. Anything that can no. give up a an advantage that they might have, um, I, I can't see it. And you can talk and you can weigh up the aspects of what it does for the community in Alice Springs and, and the Northern Territory and, and how they've built a connection with the community there, and that's fantastic. But at the end of the day, if you're leaving four points on the table, and there's nothing to say the Giants might not have upset the D's anyway at the G, but if you're leaving the potential for you know a win on the table uh, and we looked at the ladder and, and, and where they might finish and they're equal on points with a couple of teams just below them it could be really costly yeah and if you gave the players and the coaches the option of playing a game at the MCG or Alice Springs Park, they're yeah. going to be they're going to be playing at the MCG every time so and you made a good point about the community aspect there are benefits of playing in Absolutely. the Alice Springs that deal that they've got with the government up there I, I get the benefits and that cash injection that they can get but you did mention that they've been doing this for a long time when they were in debt was yeah. when they um, had this deal originally they've been debt free now for two years so I don't think financially it's necessary for them to continue playing up there other than the community aspect and helping grow the game in the Northern Territory which is important obviously but from a financial Standpoint. Yep. It's got us and Kilda fans. They sold games to Cairns for years and lost exactly. basically all of them. Exactly. But the best revenue stream for any football club, I believe, is just winning games. You win flags and you compete for premierships. That's the best source of revenue you can get because you get more members, um, more people rock up to your games. Yep. And I've got numbers here. When you look at Melbourne's crowds, so I've gone from 2012 through to 2023. 2012, when they were competing with the expansion teams for a wooden spoon. Um, they were no better than the 11th highest average attendance and no worse than the 13th, whereas now they're sixth and they were fifth last year. Why do you think that is? Success. They've won premierships. Yeah. Their memberships have skyrocketed. They were hovering in that, were around the low 30,000s and 40,000s a decade ago. 
they win a premiership and they jumped, well, they were 52,000 in 2021. They yep. won that flag, jumped another 14,000 in 2022. They've got 66K members now. And one of their GA memberships uh, full season right now is $248. If hypothetically you've got 14,000 people signing up for 248 bucks. I know this is a very simple, <laughs> yeah. simple mindset, but that's $3.5 million. So how important is 600K? Yeah. D's fans. Oh, I think four points is worth a lot more than 600 grand from selling your game. D's fans, so. let us know at Footy Tips on Twitter if you agree or disagree with Jared. Uh, segment that we've had in the recent weeks on this podcast, uh, the key start from every game when we go through every game, look at uh, where it was won and lost. Christian, Brisbane versus Richmond. We were thinking this might be a a bit of a test for the Lions and they ended up showing uh, the footy world that they are pretty serious, especially when they play up at the Gabba. Yeah, exactly. Just, uh, again, 26 of 29 now, I think they are up there. So they just continually uh, get the job done. But, yeah, sort of looked at it from, yeah, they, they were very, very good. But for Richmond, it was probably, yeah, one of their most disappointing losses for a long time. So I know the 81-point loss is their biggest loss since round 23-2016, which, again, that loss, I think, you know, Buddy kicked 10 and almost cost Damien Hardwick his job. You see what happened to the club since that loss. So, you know... The club turned around and almost built a dynasty from it, so can McWalter do something similar yet to be seen? But as I said, they lost the inside 50 count by 30. That's their worst result in any game, going back to 2016 as well. Um, and they're just their total of inside 50s for 38 was also their lowest in that year as well. But it was also out of the stoppages. So one area that Brisbane sort of do get teams is, is it's a high stoppage game, it's a high clearance game. You know you've got to be able to sort of win clearances against Brisbane and get the ball moving. So... Richmond lost the clearance count 46 to 22, so a fair smashing just on the raw clearances. So, But of Richmond's 22 clearances, only 12 were actually effective. So 10 of those clearances were actually kick clangers that turned it over straight away coming out of the stoppage. So those 12 effective clearances is the equal lowest we've ever recorded in a game. So Richmond would have known the most important part of the game is, is stoppages and getting a hand still first, and that, that was completely broken on the night. Uh, the Swans and Geelong, we've, we've mentioned this game already, but it really was a bit of a bit of a fizzer and you just need to look at the expected score we've talked about expected score a lot on this podcast to see that uh these sides did not take their chances yeah so you combine both of them so i think sydney left 43 points uh on the on, you know they missed 43 points worth of shots on their expected score they were 43 points a bit lower and and uh geelong were at about 19 or 20 points so across the match it was 63 points fewer than expected to be scored which is the worst ever match for accuracy uh going back to 2013 so on record so again it was just yeah, Sydney probably looked like they feel like they could have taken their chances and probably won the game, but Geelong could be saying the same thing too. We now won one or two more shots that we were supposed to, we would have won. We've talked about the uh, the stat where it's 30 shots and lose uh, and, and how rare it is for that. No team lost, but the the <laughs> the 30 shots and not winning stat. How does that, how does that yeah, sit it's, here it's for the It's still swans? stacking up. So as I said, it was never at 100%. So 30 shots on goal and not won this year. That was the fourth time. Um, but as I said, there's been 62 games where a team's had 30 shots, so still 58 wins from those 62 games this year. Uh, so Crows uh, lost to the Giants in round one. Remember, they had all the, the domination of the ball there. Swans and Giants in round seven, Giants and Richmond in round 12, and the draw this week. Uh, Adelaide and North Melbourne. Now, North made a decent fist of this for a bit, and then the Crows were just, as they've seemingly been able to do at Adelaide Oval a lot this year, they just kick away. Yeah, it was, uh, again, sort of, Looking at West Coast, Hawthorne North, you know, we do this every week and try to look at a game. It's, it's you, know, you don't want to talk about how they were smashed in, in every area every single week. So it's always trying to look at the positives for North. And again, they would have, you talk about Richmond and Brisbane, Richmond knowing what Brisbane's game streak was. North would have known Adelaide's game streak is 
and we've spoken about it before, post-clearance ground balls in contests. So they're pretty good stoppage team, but what they really do is they hunt the ball once it leaves stoppages and in general play. Um, so going into the game, North were number one in that, uh, sorry, Adelaide were number one in this stat for post-clearance ground ball, and North were 14th. But across the game, North won it by 10, uh, which is the third best result by any team against Adelaide. So there would have been one clear thing that they would have, you know, wanted to apply and try to get their hands to the ball first out in general play, and they sort of ticked that off. Um, but yeah, it was sort of, again, a lot of the times you look at weaker teams, it's, it's what we call the bookend, so the inside 50 and the defensive 50 for either of them. Uh, North basically couldn't score when they went inside. Adelaide were scoring too easy. Um, so basically Adelaide scored from 15% more inside 50s than the, than North did on the across the game, which was the biggest differential of the round. So mm. again, just taking your chances when you're up forward, Adelaide were able to do that. And then as you said, the game sort of fizzled out, fizzled out by the end. And in that final quarter, Adelaide were just chipping around and just had way too much space. So 77% of their possessions in the final quarter were uncontested, which is the equal second highest percentage in a fourth quarter this year. So North just basically, yeah, for three quarters sort of, held on and did as much as they could. But yeah, the fourth quarter, you could see that Adelaide had sort of, yeah, put the game to bed. Jared, you raised an interesting point in the office uh, just before we came on for this podcast about Jamara Hagen, Of course, the dogs uh, too strong for Fremantle. And you said that, or you asked rather, if he was going to be the player who could next kick 100 goals. Mm. What is it about Jamara that you saw on uh, Saturday night that makes you think that? There's always been a lot of hype about him when he was originally drafted into the competition and we've seen glimpses of his potential, but I think all of that potential was on show against the Dockers, and we've seen it. He, he lacks consistency, but he is just a young a young player, and young key forwards do take their time to develop it. Every time he goes up for a mark, you know he's clunking it, and sometimes he's two or three deep in a pack. He takes it at the highest point every single time. I just, when I watch him, I just think he's going to be, he's already imposing on defences. I think he's going to start dominating teams with another preseason or two. And I, I honestly do think, if you had to back any young key forward to kick 100 goals, surely Jamara. I'm, I'm picking Jamara. Yeah, over, oh, over a Max King, a Bank King. His accuracy is still, he's kicked 24 yeah. behinds and 20 goals this year. We talk about, I think last year we talked about Max King being one of those like um, confidence players in front of goal. If you miss the first shot, he's going to have a bit of a poor night out. Whereas if he gets the first shot, he might kick a few. I think Jamar is a little bit similar. Just, I don't know, sometimes when he's lining up for goal, he's, he's, he's running, he's a bit like swaying as he's going. The action doesn't look quite as set. I mean, obviously all the talent, you know, six scoring shots on the weekend, yeah. um, but just wasn't quite able to like probably punish the Dockers as much as he could have uh, despite being obviously one of the best players on the ground. Oh, his goal kicking accuracy needs to improve but if you were forced to back <laughs> someone to kick 100 goals in their career Is this right going to be now, one of those things where I say a, a thing and then you come when I'm off the podcast next that was a bad call? Potentially. <laughs> Christian, something from that game. Uh, yeah, so let's look at the Bulldogs and talk about you know marking targets up there and it's probably been one of their strengths slash weaknesses this year is their goals from set shots and how you know even at the start of the year when, when we spoke about their potential forward line. It was looking like it was going to be Norton, Darcy, Lobb, Hugo Hagen. So we knew they were going to be very top-heavy up there. Uh, so on the weekend this week against the Dockers, 80 points of their 102 were from set shots. Um, and basically, yeah, this year they've, they're differential against the opposition. So they're plus 176 points from set shots this year. So they've outscored their t- you know teams by... 176 points from their set shots, but they're negative 116 from general play, which is 15. So they just don't have the crumbing forwards at the moment to get those goals. If you know, it's almost like mark or bust down there for the Bulldogs forward line at the moment. And again, that's where Hugo Hagen and Norton have been so important for them. Uh, just they don't, yeah, they sort of don't have that ground level goal kicking. But 
from Frio's point of view on the night, again, just a lot of sort of wasted opportunity or wasted ball movement. So they won the ground ball, gets by 18. We know how important that is to win against the Bulldogs. Frio had 77 more uncontested possessions than the Dogs, which was the most of anyone for the for the round. Uh, but they kicked forward uh, their, their fewest in any time this year. So 37% of that, sorry, they kicked long 37% mm. of 37% of the time this week so that which was their times. lowest yeah <laughs> le- their lowest percentage in a game this year and, and one of the five or six lowest of anyone so just too much sideways and short ball movement uh, Liam Henry watched another 33 disposals on the weekend looking uh, looking very comfortable in that midfield yeah it's just yeah three or four weeks now he's just he's found that role on the wing and, and well, that wing role you just need to give him the ball um, and he is he's starting to get those cheap handball receives and they're sort of trying to trust the ball in his hand but another one I've sort of flagged and again love to have Jake on this podcast so probably a year or two away but Caleb Sarong is going to win a Brownlow isn't he like he's had another 38 disposals 18 contested possessions 10 clearances 7 tackles couple of score assists on the weekend uh, I think he's overtaken Brayshaw clearly as Frio's premier midfielder, but I sort of I just watch him and just think he's got that game style. He's close enough to the umpire with everything he does that he'll get plenty of Brownlow votes across his career. Good problem to have when you're trying to compare and split hairs between Brayshaw and Sarong as to who's the better midfielder. Uh, look, if any one set of people had a bad weekend, it was English cricket fans, but the second set I think that had a really bad one was Nick Dacos haters. Because, you know, Dacos, oh, he only gets the cheapies. Oh, he only kicks out from, from goal. Oh, he doesn't get contested possessions. We can now put that myth to bed because he was fantastic against the Suns. Yeah, quick reminder that Jake didn't have him in his top 50 plays to start the oh, season. The keep coming. Uh, no, but that, I mean, these are the roles. You can see it in him even when he was playing off a halfback flank. These are just the roles he's been put in. He's always, you know, he, he was an inside midfielder in his junior days anyway, a goal-kicking midfielder, which is what he's going to develop into. So it's no surprise that he's been thrown into the midfield with no Dugowie there, and he's thrived because we all know what he can do, whether he's playing off half-back or through the midfield. I think it's a great asset now for Craig McRae to have. Well, and interesting, at- when Dugowie comes back, do they stick with him in the guts or put him on a half-back flank again? Yeah, and you look at this weekend, I mean, he's played centre-bounce, I think, for about 20 centre-bounces, which was second or third most at Collingwood, but... He's finished with team team highs, so no no one else at Collingwood had more than thirteen contested possessions, seven clearances, and ten tackles. So exactly, Matt, for all those haters that sort of, he was playing a role. He was playing an outside running general defender. You know, giving the ball role. Everyone's like, oh, he can't win the inside ball. How many clearances? How many tackles? He got well. If you give him a job and tell him to tackle and and, and win clearances, he'll do that. So, uh, yeah, the number one for all of those stats on the weekend. So he he is an inside player. Yeah, uh, Pies, period of domination there just took it away from the Suns and it was, well, the whole game was really a domination, but a, a specific period here you've got you've got. Yeah, sort down. of it was about a 25-minute period. So it was the 19-minute mark of the second quarter to the 40-minute mark of the third quarter. It was 17 inside 50s to four in that time, six goals, six to zero. So again, 12 scoring shots in a row uh, in that 25 minutes. So it's a, a scoring shot every two minutes. Contested possessions were 38 to 15. We know... Been speaking about Gold Coast signature, something they can rely on. Contest, they don't get smashed at contest this year, but they were in that little in that little period. So 38-15 contested possessions, but then the tackles were 18-8 in Collingwood's favour as well. So uh, just yeah, for that that little period sort of showed, um, you know, that they they struggled hunting the ball, but they also struggled being the hunted because they were mm-hmm. tackled so much. But talk about Gold Coast and and, and across the whole year. Look at their lapses in game. So we look at goals conceded. So three goals in a row conceded and how many times you've done that. Again, West Coast, North and Hawthorne are the only three teams below Gold Coast. So there's a lot of stats this year that if you know that those are the only three teams below you, then yeah. you're in a bit of trouble. 
Uh, Gold Coast are probably sitting where Carlton were the last couple of years, that they're just conceding too many runs of goals against the, across games. Well, they're seven and eight on the season, but five of those eight losses have been by seven or more goals. So it just kind of goes to show that when they are down, they kind of get beaten. So it's a bit of a bit of a grim situation, and we might chat a little bit more about the Suns and the future of that club a little bit later. Uh, the Dons, geez, they almost pulled it off, but... Port, strangely on a wet night, uh, we're, we're letting loose from outside 50 and doing it well. Yeah, so again, talk about Essendon. So going into the game and knowing what they need to do against Port, you need to win contest and you need to try to keep the ball in your forward half. No one's sort of been able to beat Port Adelaide in time in forward half this year and it's mainly because they're so good at, at, at winning the contest. But Essendon were plus 19 for contested possession, so that's their equal second best result this season. So again, they've been a very high uncontested possession team, West uh, Essendon. They sort of had to switch up their game style. I mean, it was wet. Plus, they were coming up against a very, very good contest team. So they switched it up. They're, you know, they're plus 19 for contest possession. The only game better this year was their game against West Coast early in the year. But the other one was the 39 points from forward half intercepts, which is their equal best result in a game this year. We spoke about Essendon. A lot of their reliance is sort of back half. They lose the time in forward half, but they're very, very good at moving the ball from one end to the other. It's almost impossible to do that against Port, and it's almost impossible to do that in the wet. So it was good that they switched up their game. And again, you know, they were within two points. Um... Because they did, they sort of won contests and sort of able to keep the ball in their forward half. But yeah, that goal at the uh, at the end of the game by Dan Houston was sort of a bit of um yeah a bit of a theme for the night. Support kicked four goals, two from outside fifty, which is a fairly good return. I think most teams average about one one and a half goals per game from outside fifty across uh, across the match. But they yeah four two from outside fifty, um, including the Dan Houston one. And another one here that I hadn't got written on the notes, but I must have it written somewhere else. Kane Farrell obviously had a big game, and we spoke a couple of weeks ago. Um, after James Sisley had the big game against St Kilda, and we looked at 10 intercept possessions and 10 score involvements and how rare that is. James Sisley and Kane Farrell are now the only two players to have a 10 score involvement and a 10 intercept possession game this season. Very good. Uh, Carlton and Hawthorne Blues. Two big wins in a row now, Jared. They are in that middling pack of sort of teams between 7th and 15th who are kind of within about two games of each other or three, two or three games of each other. What do you make of their last couple of weeks? Is there enough there to sort of say that they could make a run to go in the back half of the season or the, the back third? There is because of how highly people rated them to come into the season. But these wins were against Hawthorne and the Gold Coast Suns. So if they can beat Frio in Perth this week, mm. which is almost like an elimination final at this stage of the year, then I'll say, yes, they're definitely in the hunt, but they might be a win or two too far back yeah. and it's, it is it's even you know obviously we're cult, I'm a Carlton supporter but yeah running out my eye over the game so there was probably nothing sort of to take out too much it was probably yeah Hawthorne were very down and Carlton sort of won the outside area so we know against Gold Coast a couple of weeks ago a lot of Carlton's goal came from centre bounce clearances which you sort of said isn't sustainable you can't rely on scoring from a centre bounce clearance um, a whole game but yeah this week against Hawthorne 73 points from back half which again is very, it's, it's a good way to score, but it's very unlike Carlton to rely so much mm. on that clean and pure ball movement from the back half. They've, again, they've probably looked more designed to be a, a stoppage team with a lot of forward half stoppages and try to lock the ball in there. They were just able to move the ball too easy against Hawthorne, and that was their most points from back half. But yeah, looking at Carlton, I mean, even in quarter one, they had 16 entries for three goals. So again, that forward line connection wasn't there. And in the second quarter, they sort of put their foot down and, and they got the game away. They got five goals from 11 entries. So it was almost... The whole way the game was played was very similar, but to me, the first quarter was a little bit frustrating that they didn't finish off the work. Second quarter, they it's got the results. It's like they need the stars aligned for the forward line to all work in the yeah, same mix. Yeah, and I said, when when you run the numbers across and try to work out where Carlton are as a team and what they can take out of this game going forward, there's, there's a little bit of that 
back half ball movement that they got right but again they probably did it against a team that's not strong at defending that one of the big knocks on the blues during their down period in particular was just a lack of spread of goal kickers and relying on charlie kerno and harry was obviously out of form um but 10 goal kickers on the weekend against the hawks uh david cunningham kicked two chera kicked two blake acres fogarty sam doherty um Ed Kerno, oh, he didn't kick a goal, but they, they all these guys all hit the score set sheet. So they're starting to get a little bit more production out of the midfield and from players up the ground as well, uh, which must be very encouraging for Blues fans. Uh, the Ds and the Giants, we did touch on this and the kind of smacking that um, the Giants got in the stats, but obviously won the game by two points. Uh, anything else to take out of this game before yeah, we move no, on? No, I loved your summary before you went through all those numbers, you know, the 14 to 2 centre bounce clearances and all that. So we could have taken all of that and aggregated it together, but we just used two simple stats. So they won the contested possessions by at least 40, and they won the inside 50s by at least 25. Uh, so that's happened 47 times before this week for 47 wins for those teams. <laughs> But it's not just wins for those teams. The smallest win before this weekend was 21 points. And the average margin for winning those two stats, you'd win the game by 87 points. So there's been 15 times where a team's had, you know, plus 40 contested and plus 25 inside 50s that have won the game by 100 points. Melbourne had a two-point loss, the first team ever to lose with, the, with those uh, that stat counts. So. Gee, that's a good one. We might have to clip that one yeah. off the social. Was, <laughs> just quickly, was Josh Kelly's goal better than Dan Houston's? Nah. No? Nah. In the wet? It was good. Uh, I think Further it, when out. you talk about like the, the moment and, and, and all that kind of as stuff. A, as a shot on goal. Yeah. Purely. Thoughts? Yeah, I'll go down here. Again, getting it over the man on the line. Everyone yeah, knows yeah. where you're kicking it. Kelly was a little bit... There was guys leading up towards him. He's kicked it over people's heads. So it was a little bit... Whereas Dan Houston, everyone knew where that ball was going. you still got to kick it past them all. Uh, last game of the weekend. The Eagles much improved against the Saints. Almost looked like they were right in it until kind of... Uh, things just kind of caught up with them and the Saints, despite being a little bit short on the bench, were able to kick away. Yep. So again, always easy to sit here on a podcast and say what what should be easy for teams to be able to sort of show. But again, you get smashed by 171 points. You sort of talk about just show some effort. You might not have the ability to win contested possession. You might not have the skill to do it, but surely just pressure and and tackling is is a sign of effort. Um, And again, their, their effort was up. So pressure in the first quarter was 219. So we know anything over 200 is elite. In the second quarter, it was 203. It was 219 for the first 20 minutes of the third quarter as well, but it was 167 for the rest of the game from that point on. So, again, a lot of what West Coast was doing was built on just that high-pressure game on, 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 on St Kilda, but they just couldn't keep it up for the whole four quarters. Uh, we're getting into red time of this podcast, proudly brought to you by Subway, which means it's time for Is the Hype Justified or Is It Hyperbole? Jared, Scott Pendlebury will most likely break the game's all-time disposal record this week, surpassing Robert Harvey, and not enough has been made of this achievement. The hype is justified. I think this is one of the greatest achievements in AFL history. Is the 9,000 disposal club more illustrious than the 1,000 goal club? There's six in the 1,000 goals. There's four in the 9,000 touches. (laughs) No. This is a big achievement. Disposals weren't counted before the 70s. Goals always were. Oh, yeah, but who's getting 9,000 touches in the bloody 30s and 40s? (laughs) And and, And the mud piles. And goals are gone down, but disposals are gone up. So, again, like a lot of disposal records are being broken in modern day. You know, Sheasel's got the most of anyone in his first 20 games, and he's beating Greg Williams from 20-odd years ago. So it's... Yeah, a little bit. Again, I think it's an underrated record, though, that the Pendlebury one. I think it deserves way more recognition. I think, yeah, it's an awesome achievement. It's just, I don't know, it's funny how we sort of, we always look at the 1,000 goals and we well, celebrate the, the, Buddy, the which deserves to be well. celebrated, yeah. Mm. But I think, you know, 9,000 
600 and whatever. What are you calling for? Pies fans who applaud his 14th disposal? Or I don't know. What do you do to celebrate it? Do <laughs> the fans run onto the field on his 14th <laughs> touch? Like, what happens? I don't know. But no, he definitely deserves a lot of recognition for it. I think this is an awesome achievement yep. that, yeah, not a lot of, a lot of people are, are talking about, but should be, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll go down as probably one of the best players to not win a Brownlow. Spot on. Uh, Christian, Stuart Jew won't last the season as Gold Coast Suns coach. Jeez, yeah, you sort of, again, try to stay away from talking about sacking people and that, but you got to, where there's smoke, there's fire and things like that. Just the reports that were coming out last night seem a lot of information in those reports, a lot of specific information of who would take over and things like that. So you, you tend to think there's got to be something there if, mm. if, if people are talking in specifics on air. Well, she won for you, mate. Zach Tui will break Jim Stein's record for the most games played by an Irish player. Therefore, he's going to go down as the best Irishman to play the game. Oh, a very good Irishman, but hyperbole. Um, you just need to look at Jim Steins and, and, well, firstly, what's what's happened since his passing as well, but also his on-field achievements. Uh, two times All-Australian, Brownlow medalist, Lee Matthews Trophy winner, four times uh, Melbourne Best and Fairest, Team of the Century, Hall of Fame. Look, Zach Tui has the premiership, which I think is something that uh, the Steins lacks on his resume. But in terms of impact and what Steins has done for the game, and, and who knows if Tui would have even come across to Australia to play Australian rules football had it not been for Jim Steins, I think uh, someone's going to have to do something extremely remarkable to, uh, to surpass Steins on that one. Jazzy, Lions will beat West Coast by 100+. plus. <laughs> What are they paying a buck? A buck and one cent? Wings odds? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 1.002, I think it was. What, what did the Swans beat them by? 171. 171. Mm. I don't think it's going to be as bad. I think one... Let me have a punt here. 148 points they'll win by. Ooh, Christian, you want for, to... for absolutely no reason. <laughs> Still a huge That's margin. margin. Uh, <laughs> Bringing that as one of the bad takes. That <laughs> Yeah, reverse that. as a tip. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I probably 90, 80 points. Again, I liked a lot of what, what, nah, what I saw higher. against West Coast last Did week. They spend I, their tickets on trying to get a home win. Yeah, a little bit. But again, I I don't think again Brisbane are a, a very dynamic forward line. But I just don't That's see. Yeah, yeah, I just again the the high contest game. I think is, yeah, it could be a bit bit more scrappier than the Sydney game, which was just pure all out offense for the whole game. I there think they're going to be ruthless. Maybe eighty seven points for me. That's uh, <laughs> Uh, footy tips uh, get your tips in Thursday night footy is back again and if you want to get in contact with us we are at footy tips on Twitter while Twitter still exists you can get your questions your comments your feedback in there Christian good to speak with you as always Jared good to have you on the podcast again to everyone at home we will speak to you in the next episode listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN footy pod wherever you get your podcasts